Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Ogletree Deacons Employment Law Podcast. My name is Charles Thompson. I am a shareholder in the San Francisco office and co-chair of the Leave of Absence Reasonable Accommodation Practice Group. And today we have with us a shareholder from our Boston office, Lisa Burton. Lisa is a litigator, and she also provides lots of counseling and defends employers on reasonable accommodation and leaves of absence issues. Lisa, anything else uh, that I missed that you'd like to that you'd like to say about yourself? Uh, no, I think that's it. Uh, except with the two of us, you, they've got the two coasts covered. Well, I think that that's right. You know, you're in Boston. I'm in San Francisco. I think we probably should advise everybody if you hear dogs. Uh, both Lisa and I have dogs. If you hear dogs, that means the mail person or Federal Express or UPS is there. And we'll, we'll, we'll try to see what we can do about that. All right. Today, we're going to talk about the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, which was just introduced into Congress on February 16th. It's the fifth time since 2012 that the act has been introduced into the House of Representatives. And last year's version was the only time that it ever passed the House. Um, However, the Senate did not take it up. This time, uh, Jerry Nadler, uh, Democrat of New York, um, introduced the bill. He had four co-sponsors, both two Republicans and two Democrats. And fortunately, Lisa, I know you've studied up on this bill and uh, you're in Massachusetts, which has a lot of protections for pregnant employees, as as does California. Can you tell us just a little bit about what this uh, what this bill does? Sure, Charles. I'm happy to do so. So really what this law does is it requires employers to, in essence, accommodate pregnant women. And traditionally, when we ever thought of accommodations, we didn't think of accommodating pregnancy because it's not a permanent condition. But here, um, the law specifically addresses the need to make accommodations for known limitations that relate to pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions for qualified employees, unless, and this is where we borrow some language from the ADA, um, it is an undue hardship to do so. Um, And so it's a question of having to accommodate for these conditions. And it really talks about coverage for um, pregnancy, childbirth, Again, other things that it may have to do with and related to pregnancy and childbirth. And so if you have an employee who is pregnant and the law is going to cover folks who have 15 or more employees federally, um, you will have to make certain accommodations for them. So, Lisa, let me just make sure I understand. So it differs a little from the ADA, doesn't it? Because you don't have to be disabled by pregnancy. Instead, it just has to be a a known limitation that the employer must accommodate. 
That is, is exactly right. And in fact, um, for those of us who've been practicing in this area for a long time, um, we oftentimes would uh, qualify situations that were not, for lack of a better word, permanent or long-term disabilities. And while we would think of, if you were large enough to be covered by the FMLA, um, we didn't really think of the need to make a reasonable accommodation. But now this law at the federal level, and uh, as we know, there's a lot of states who have something similar, will require employers to actually make accommodations in the workplace for um, folks who are dealing with pregnancy, childbirth, and related medical conditions. Okay. And so it seems like, though, that there are a lot of laws out there already that that maybe people could take advantage of. And maybe you can explain to us why those laws, why the legislators who introduced the bill might not think those are enough. What about the Pregnancy Discrimination Act and the Supreme Court's 2015 decision under the PDA? Why isn't that sufficient, according to the legislators? Well, and I think that the legislature's a couple of reasons. First, um, the fact that you can't discriminate against somebody who is pregnant or is becoming pregnant um, is very different than accommodating or, or giving certain things for folks who are pregnant and who need accommodations in the uh, workplace. And the other reason is that in order to in essence, get the coverage, for lack of a better word, the employer employees have to demonstrate that the accommodations being sought were also being provided to non-pregnant workers with similar limitations. So the law there, in essence, said, well, you know, to get the accommodation as a pregnant worker, it has to be an accommodation that I would give to non-pregnant workers. And there are some things that I think that are specific to pregnancy um, that you're not going to have. So, Lisa, let's back up just a second. Can you give us an example of a situation in which a, um, a, a pregnant employee would not be able to show that they were that the employer was accommodating non-pregnant employees? Because I guess what you're really saying is that is that look, if you're accommodating non-pregnant employees with this particular accommodation, and you won't accommodate pregnant employees, you're therefore discriminating against the pregnant employees. Correct? Correct. It's it's the basis of their status as compared to I think their medical condition. So, okay, so go ahead. Sorry. So, yeah. So going so down that path um, with regard to traditional accommodations, you know, you think about. Um, changes in duties or changes in functions if they aren't essential or providing people uh, certain other things. But for a pregnant person, um, first, these conditions are not going to be permanent for the most part. And second, the types of accommodations that these laws really are talking about or, or want us to think about making um, may involve things like, um, you know, job restructuring or providing light duty. Um, and light duty per se isn't something you'd never normally provide under the ADA long-term or, or in essence, um, it's changing the duties and functions of the job. Whereas here, I think giving the light duty is going to be more akin to what we think of under the FMLA, that we can put somebody in a job or a capacity. Um, the other 
again, the transfers are going to be considered temporary um, and therefore um, asking for temporary transfers or temporary accommodations is not something you'd normally do for an individual who is asking for a, a general accommodation. Okay, so I guess that explains why um, the legislators don't believe that the PDA is sufficient. What about the ADA? Why can't pregnant employees just get accommodations from the ADA? Well, I think the, the biggest issue with that really has to deal with the fact that the ADA considers permanent conditions or long-term conditions that need accommodations. And in fact, when we all started looking at the ADA when it came out, generally pregnancy um, was not going to be covered by the ADA because it was temporary. And right, the so- whole point of the ADA is these are long-term conditions and we are trying to allow people to participate in the workforce, which is why originally it started out with folks thinking about wheelchair access and ramps. And then, of course, over time, the ADA expanded. I think, you know, that's part of what we are talking about, why the ADA itself doesn't work, you know, and then you're dealing with the the hodgepodge of state laws. California, we have our own pregnancy disability leave law that provides employees with four months, which we define as 17.3 weeks of, um, of leave if the physician healthcare provider certifies the employee is disabled. In addition, the law says that you have to reasonably accommodate pregnant employees, including providing a transfer to a physician um, that is less risk to the health of the mom or the unborn child. And Massachusetts has something as well, doesn't it? Correct. Massachusetts has a similar statute um, and it, it covers, in essence, uh, employers with six or more employees. So Clearly, the threshold is going to be lower than the federal law if it, in fact, passes. Um, But it also covers, in addition to accommodating individuals, um, you know, there's also the pieces that deal with um, providing places for women to express milk, um, which, again, isn't pregnancy per se. It's after after the fact. Um, And it requires certain accommodations even be made without requesting documentations because it sees certain um, pregnancy conditions is almost, I would say, universal, um, which are, you know, the need for more bathroom breaks, more water, likely seating, restrictions on lifting over 20 pounds, um, and again, ex- expressing milk. Does California cover similar type areas? Oh, oh, yes. We have our own lactation accommodation statute, and some cities do as well, including, uh, including, including San Francisco. I think, you know, Charles, and and what you've been looking, and I know you're up on all of these as as well, um, this isn't just an East Coast, West Coast phenomenon. No, no. No, we've got 30 different states and the District of Columbia and four cities that have their own uh, pregnancy-specific statutes regarding reasonable accommodation. Obviously, that's all over the country. It is not just West Coast, East Coast. That's probably a reason as we look at this right now with the momentum, I guess, would you, do you think it, uh, the chances are of passing this at the federal level or, you know, is the fifth time the charm? I don't know about that. And I hate to speculate about anything that's going to happen in Washington, but you've got a bipartisan introduction of the bill. I think that uh, if Schumer stays the head of the, you know, the the majority leader in the Senate, 
um, that that will, that it will be raised. And I think that it would be a difficult thing for the other side not to vote for. I guess, you know, one of the things I know we're also dealing with in, in Massachusetts that, and I think you talked about, you know, California is very similar. You mentioned the, the paid leave aspects. Um, and Massachusetts, as you know, is one of the states that recently put into effect the Massachusetts paid uh, family medical leave. And of course, pregnancy as well as bonding time um, are all going to be covered. Now, at least as of right now, the federal law, you know, doesn't require paid time off. I don't see that happening on a federal level. I mean, obviously, it's true in California. We have paid family leave and uh, that, that provides up to eight weeks of partial wage replacement for baby bonding. But I want to get back to the PWA just for just for a few moments. So what I understood about why we can't rely or why uh, pregnant employees can't rely on the ADA is that, frankly, the ADA doesn't cover it. The ADA doesn't cover pregnancy because it is a temporary condition. Is that right? Correct. It is not a, for lack of a better word, permanent interference with a major life activity, and such yet, that it needs an accommodation. Right. But and yet the ADA, I mean, I think that the PWA does use the ADA as a model, as a format for once an employee lets known that she has this condition, this known limitation, I think is how the statute uses it, then, then what processes that we all already should be familiar with under the ADA. What, what, what takes place then? So in, in essence, once you have, a, as, as you'd said, a known limitation, right? And a lo- known limitation um, really is, takes, a, takes from the ADA, means a physical or mental condition related to affected or arising out of, and instead of a disability, it deals with pregnancy, childbirth, or related conditions. So once you have a known disability um, and you have a qualified employee, which means an employee who can do the job functions with or without reasonable accommodation, again, we're back to the ADA's definition, um, then we're really dealing with, you know, they can't, you'd have to accommodate if they can't perform the essential functions for a temporary period, which again is different than the ADA, but it it borrows similar language. Um, The essential function could be performed in the near future and uh, you can accommodate the, um, the, in essence, the inability to perform. And it's that part that talks about the accommodation and and, and entering into the dialogue that really borrows, I think, even more so from the whole process that we know going through the ADA, the importance of going through that dialogue with the employee, figuring out if you can accommodate or if you can't accommodate, um, that it is an undue hardship for you to do so, Um, which in this instance, maybe even harder when you're talking about pregnancy. I don't know how it will all play out. But when you're talking shorter periods of time, it's you know going to be harder for an employer to maybe argue or even show the undue hardship or nature, unless it is something kind of physician related throughout the facility or, or some other reason. I think that that you look that the employers are going to need to look at the ADA and engage in 
the interactive process with the employee and try to find a reasonable accommodation, which means, of course, documenting the process, documenting the process and gathering medical information that is necessary to establish the disability and the and the accommodation. Is that what you're saying? Uh, correct. And again, this is at the federal level that you'd have to go through that process um, in order to be able to argue at the end of the day why um, you can't accommodate an employee. Yeah, um, it's difficult. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how how it is with your with your clients uh, or the people you the companies you advise, but. I find that it's difficult generally to establish an undue hardship and just generally what how would what do you think uh, I would agree I think also because so many times and again depending on the size of the employer um, we have so many different laws coming in that the normal thought process is that uh, for larger employers covered by the federal FMLA that you use that 12 weeks of FMLA or whatever time period to start documenting why it's going to be an undue hardship to continue to make certain accommodations. Here, the employers aren't going to have that lead time. Um, And they're going to have this question um, of, in certain states like Massachusetts, that there's going to be certain things that you're going to have to accommodate that don't need to be documented. Um, And some things we're just going to do normally, you know, more bathroom breaks. Now, you know, for the most part, my clients who have, uh, you know, manufacturing or other things that, you know, you need to actually have people take, you know, come to the machine and take a break, you know, those clients will be able to, um, probably document it, but other clients that don't have such a structured process, it's going to be very hard to show that the bathroom breaks are causing an undue hardship because you're really going to have to tie it more so to performance issues. Um, And oftentimes by the time you get there, um, it will be hard to show. So Lisa, can you explain to us or list for us some of the accommodations that employers might be uh, might be asked to implement. Sure, you know. So, an example, and again, it it seems to be the the easy easier ones for most part is, you know, providing seating. Right. If somebody is generally a clerk or something, you know, on a modification or providing seating is going to be a reasonable accommodation that they would have to likely make. Temporary transfers, maybe to a job that may be less strenuous or hazardous. Um, providing, again, uh, water or other things like that for, for somebody who is, is pregnant would be deemed a reasonable accommodation. Um, also, just limiting what would be, if, if you're in a manufacturing or some other lab, you know, limiting contact with certain chemicals if that's asked for. The other thing that could, again, be a, a reasonable accommodation, but is going to be, I think, a little harder in this situation is that an unpaid leave of absence also could be, at least under federal law and also under state laws, a reasonable accommodation. However, here, there are specific things about forcing an employee out on a unpaid leave of absence that will have more 
kind of issues, I think, than the common accommodation process that um, employees and employers go through. Um, because there is a, a lot of language about not forcing employees, pregnant women, out on an unpaid leave of absence. And so while that may be an accommodation, I think that one in particular is one that we should be looking at as a last resort versus the first resort. Lisa, any final words before, um, before we close off here? Like anything else, these are situations that we have so many different laws in so many different areas that educating your frontline managers is going to be most important because oftentimes human resources or, or other folks aren't going to know somebody's pregnant um, until much further in the process. And again, educating your folks on um, the need to listen and possibly accommodate and raise issues is going to be even more so in this situation. Yeah, I think that I would leave with these uh, with these thoughts. First of all, if the law passes, I think in many states, it's not going to make much of a difference because many states' laws are going to be, are already uh, require reasonable accommodation. I guess the second thing I would say is that, look, you and I both do trials and we know what's important. By the time you get to trial, the law part is generally over. And so now it's who tells the better narrative. And I think that employers are going to be hard pressed in most situations to come up with a narrative where denying a where we're claiming it's undue hardship to provide a reasonable accommodation to uh, to a pregnant employee. I think that's a hard narrative to sell, except in uh, very unique circumstances. Any final thoughts on that? No, I, I would agree. And I think it's. Uh... You know, we will see what happens at the federal level. But as you noted, don't forget about the states. Yeah. So anyway, Lisa, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Everybody, thank you for joining us. And we will have another leave of absence, reasonable accommodation podcast available probably within the next two weeks. Thanks very much, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.